Your mom's a swoof. My name is Sarah Jones, and this is my podcast, Your Mom's a Sleuth, where I talk about everything from murder to motherhood. Listen in as I give you the details you haven't heard on the news yet, right here on Your Mom's a Sleuth. Welcome back to Your Mom's a Sleuth. This is episode nine, The Long Year. Well, you guys, it's been an entire year since the infamous murders in Moscow, Idaho took place on November 13th of 2022. I'm recording this on the morning of November 13th, 2023. I wanted to record this last night and have it out for you first thing in the morning, but it's really a somber day and it's it's not like a celebratory anniversary. It's incredibly sad While the prime suspect has been arrested, Brian Koberger is in jail. There is no set trial date as of now, and there isn't going to be one in the foreseeable future because he waived his right to a speedy trial. Although in the last few weeks, he has unsuccessfully tried to have cameras removed from the courtroom and have the case thrown out, it's still moving forward, but just incredibly slowly, painfully slowly for the families and for all of us who are interested in seeing justice be served. Today, I want to recap what exactly happened on that cold morning in November last year. I think I've talked about, you know, every possible detail I can, but I've never really summarized exactly what happened that morning knowing everything that we know now an entire year later. So I thought I would break it down for you, especially uh, if for some reason you're new to my podcast or you're new to the case, you haven't heard about it. I'm going to give you a full breakdown of the crime. I'm going to warn you, some of it is a little bit gruesome or a lot gruesome if you're not, you know, really somebody who follows true crime. And so That's my trigger warning. Turn it off now. You're not going to like it. But if you are interested in knowing exactly what Brian Koberger is being accused of and what happened to these children in my mind, because truly they weren't even graduated from college yet, as disturbing as it is, I have to talk about the things that happened. And if I sound a little bit more subdued than normal, it's because researching what happened that morning and remembering all of the awful details is incredibly sad. And today my heart is heavy for those four kids and their families and the possibility of what might have been had they not been snuffed out. What happened that morning, though, does not start that morning. What happened that morning started in June of 2022, when Brian Koberger moved from rural Pennsylvania to Pullman, Washington, to attend Washington State University, where he was getting a doctorate in criminology. On August 21st of 2022, just a few months after he moved to Pullman, Brian Koberger's phone began pinging in the vicinity of 1112 King Road in Moscow, Idaho. 1122 King Road is a rental house on a college campus 
that is tucked away on a tiny uh, dead end street. It is hugged by a few apartment buildings and some other houses. And there are six bedrooms in this house. Those bedrooms are occupied on the first floor by Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk. On the second floor, there are two bedrooms. One is occupied by Zana Kernodal, and one is recently empty from a roommate who moved out. On the third floor, there are two bedrooms. One is occupied by Maddie Mogan, and the other one is occupied by Kaylee Gonzalez, who is moving out. She's getting ready to graduate, and she's starting to take her things back home. So in August of 2022, Brian Koberger is seen on and around the University of Idaho campus, including in the student center, which is odd because he is not a student there. Between August of 2022 and November of 2022, Brian Koberger visited the vicinity of the house on King Road 12 times. He also began to follow Zena, Maddie, and Kaylee on Instagram and repeatedly messaged one of them, and I mean repeatedly, with innocuous messages like, hello, how are you? And hi. All of these messages were ignored. He also liked many of Maddie Mogan's pictures on Instagram. All of their profiles are public and remain so to this day. Because he visited the vicinity of this home 12 times, it's important to remember that there is nothing commercial in the area. There is no library, no building that he would have been visiting. This is strictly a residential neighborhood, and this house is at a dead end. At one point, he was close enough to the home to connect to their Wi-Fi. It has been surmised that he would watch the home from the parking lot directly behind, which made the house like a fishbowl. You could sit in your car and observe the rowdy nightlife and the comings and goings of the students and their friends who occupied the home. To me, the fact that he was close enough to connect to their Wi-Fi is just as damning as the evidence that was collected inside the home after the murders. It feels like an intrusion to have someone watching you connecting to your Wi-Fi. It's the intrusion before the physical intrusion. I believe he derived a lot of pleasure out of sitting there connecting to their Wi-Fi and watching them through the windows. November 12th, 2022 was a game day with many students partying on campus for a football game. The six roommates partied all day together before they separated to go to various social events. From 10 p.m. to 1.56 a.m., Maddie and Kaylee partied downtown at a bar called the Corner Club. On their way home, they stopped by a food stand, which was picked up on a live Twitch stream. And then they took a ride share home. They made all the right decisions. Ethan and Zena were at a fraternity party at Sigma Chi, which is down the block from the house. The surviving roommate, Bethany, told police that the couple was at Sigma Chi from 9 p.m. to 1.45 a.m. because she was also there. By 2 a.m., all of the roommates were home. There is no public record of where Dylan Mortensen was that night before being home and in bed. At 2.44 a.m., Brian Koberger is seen on surveillance camera leaving his Washington State University apartment, leaving Pullman, Washington, in the direction of Moscow, Idaho. Just as he reached the main road that connects the two college towns, his phone was turned off and could not be traced. He drove around Moscow for a time, 
according to surveillance footage. A car matching his car description was picked up on camera at 3.26 a.m. and again, two minutes later, headed towards 1112 King Road. Now, Brian claims in his alibi that he was out driving that night, and that was customary for him. He was out driving all night and into the following morning. Unfortunately for him, he has nobody to corroborate that story, and he is adamant that he was never in the vicinity of 1112 King Road on the night of November 12th and into the morning of the 13th. However, police do have video footage of a car matching his on King Road between 329 and four o'clock in the morning. In fact, his car was seen making three loops around the house during that time. And again, at 4.04 a.m., his car was seen making a fourth pass and disappearing from camera view for roughly 15 minutes. And police believe that it was during this time he parked his car and entered the home committing the murders. Starting with Maddie Mogan and Kaylee Gonzalez in the room at the top of the stairs, Maddie was his first victim. It is widely believed that she was the target. Her distinct pink cowboy boots and letter M were displayed in her window and were visible from the parking lot behind their home. A map of the home was easily available through a public Zillow rental listing. Her social media accounts were public and she was a beautiful, vibrant young woman. Brian Koberger knew exactly where he was going when he entered the home. He had been planning this for months, and he was finally walking from his car down the hill and right up to the glass door, dressed in all black under the glow of festively hung twinkle lights. Quickly making his way up to the third floor by walking through the sliding glass doors into the kitchen, right past Dylan's door, up the stairs, and to the left. Things quickly went off the rails, however, because what he was not expecting to find was Kaylee Gonzalez sleeping in the room with her friend. After quickly killing Maddie and simultaneously dropping the sheath to his knife in the scuffle, Brian turned on Kaylee, who had been awakened by the commotion. Downstairs, Dylan Mortensen, in the room below, had also been awakened by what she thought was Kaylee playing with her dog Murphy. She tried to go back to sleep. Upstairs in the room above, her friend and roommate Maddie Mogan had just been slashed to death, quickly and efficiently, while she lay in bed sleeping. And Maddie's best friend Kaylee was fighting for her life. Between Kaylee and the door to escape was a very tall killer with a huge knife and a desire to destroy. Kaylee was no match for the killer or the knife. She did manage to exclaim, there's someone here, a desperate warning to her roommates below. She then fought bravely and fiercely for her life, but she was beaten and slashed to death in just minutes. Next, Brian made his way downstairs, where Zana Kernodal was awake and eating a DoorDash delivery, which had arrived at 4 a.m., just four minutes before Brian Koberger drove around the back of the house and parked to enter. Zana, awake and eating her food, was on TikTok until 4.12 a.m. It is possible that she was wearing headphones and did not hear the commotion. It is possible that she was awakened and entered the hallway to hear what was going on. We may never know the truth, or we may hear it at trial. It is also believed that Ethan was awake, and it is believed that he is the third victim and that he was killed in the hallway, just outside their bedroom door. You see, Ethan's fraternity had a strict curfew, and he was not allowed to sleep outside of the fraternity house. 
So it is believed that he and Xana were both awake because he intended to leave and head back home. Just moments after Xana turned off TikTok at 4.12 a.m., Dylan, who was now wide awake, heard Xana crying and a man say, it's okay, I'm going to help you. At 4.17 a.m., a ring doorbell camera from the house next door, less than 50 feet from Xana's window, picked up distorted sounds like whimpering and voices, a loud thud, and Murphy the dog barking. If a security camera less than 50 feet away heard all of this, then surely Dylan heard more than is listed in the affidavit. And surely Bethany Funk, who was the fifth roommate and was in the room below Zana and Ethan, heard more. Her story is yet to be told. After encountering Zana and Ethan downstairs, Brian brutally killed Ethan. It has been reported that his legs were sliced to the bone and that he was severely beaten. After eliminating Ethan, Brian then turned on Zana, who was trapped in her room. She too fought for her life, with nearly all of her fingers severed almost completely. Zana wanted desperately to live, but she was also no match for a psychopath on a mission. The carnage in their room was so severe that blood could be seen pouring down the outside of the foundation of the home the following morning. Exhausted now, Brian made his way back down the hall, through the kitchen to the sliding glass door, but not before passing Dylan Mortensen, who was standing in her doorway with the door open, perhaps thinking that this was someone's guest leaving for the night. How could he be, though? He was in all-black clothing and a mask covering his mouth and nose, which made his bushy eyebrows stand out. It is not known if he saw her, but he passed her swiftly and walked through the kitchen, out the door, back up the hill to his car. At 4.20 a.m., just three minutes after the ring doorbell next door picked up the sounds of Ethan and Zana's final moments, Brian's car was caught on surveillance, leaving the area of King Road at a very high rate of speed. At 4.48 a.m., Brian turned his phone back on, this time driving down a rural farm road south of Moscow. At 5.25 a.m., he is again caught on camera returning to the area of his home in Pullman, Washington. Most frighteningly, around 9 a.m. that same morning, Brian Koberger returned to the area of King Road before anyone was awake, before the bodies were discovered, and he stayed for approximately 10 minutes. It is also around this time that a neighbor walking his dog observed the front door to 1112 King Road wide open. Unusual because the house seemed to be still and the temperatures outside were below freezing. Did Brian Koberger re-enter the home to search for the sheath? Did he return after remembering seeing Dylan? Or was he just parked there, hoping, hoping and praying to witness the aftermath? Was Brian Koberger a drug dealer? Was this a drug deal gone wrong? Was he returning to the area to sell drugs to students who were still awake? These are some running theories, rumors, and speculations that have swirled over the past year. Many other questions remain. Why didn't Dylan alert the other roommates? It has been widely reported in recent weeks that she and Bethany were awake and texting each other throughout the 4 a.m. to 4.20 crime spree. Why weren't they texting the other roommates? Why weren't they calling the police for help? Could the sounds of your roommates being beaten and slashed to death be misconstrued with the sounds of partying, especially if you are in a drunken or drug-fueled haze? Why would your first conclusion ever be that somebody has entered your home to murder 
your four roommates. Why did Brian spare the other roommates, knowing the layout of the home intimately, understanding the amount of bedrooms, knowing the amount of roommates? He had to have been well aware that there were five young ladies living in the home. It has also been reported that just days before Dylan had moved into the room upstairs. Previously, she and Bethany had alone shared the first floor. Did Brian Koberger already know this? He followed only the three girls who lived upstairs on social media. He did not follow the two girls who lived on the bottom floor. Had Brian Koberger already been in the home for a party? It has also been widely reported that there were hundreds of students attending parties at this house on any given weekend, including a Halloween party just two weeks before. Is it possible that he entered the home dressed in disguise? Did he think that Dylan's room was empty? Because it had been for several weeks before. Had he been peeking through the windows? Or perhaps even more sinister, had he entered the home, connected to their Wi-Fi, and walked the halls of the house while the girls slept? Was his original plan to simply kill Maddie and have her roommates find her the following morning, and the plan simply unraveled upon his arrival? Or was his plan originally to kill the three of them, and Ethan was just collateral? Clearly, when he left that house, he was full of rage and adrenaline. Did he simply not see Dylan standing in the doorway, or did he not care because she was not an intended target? There are still so many unanswered questions and so many things that have left the general public, family members, and friends scratching their heads and just wondering why. The survivors won't stay silent for long. Although there is currently a gag order on all things related to the case, there was a recent interview with Dylan's ex-stepmother where she described how Dylan is in a constant state of post-traumatic stress disorder. She has severe survivor's guilt, and she has left the University of Idaho and now attends a different university. And where is Bethany Funk? Where is her statement? Where is her experience? Where is her explanation of her behavior that night? The story goes that the following morning, the girls awoke and were nervous about what they had heard the night before. They were so nervous that they called friends to come over and investigate the home. During the time that they called their friends and the time that the friends arrived, the girls made their way outside, where friends found them in a complete state of distress and shock. It is believed that one of the girls passed out due to the shock of what she had seen. At this time, a bystander used one of their phones to call 911. The call came from one of the roommate's phones, but the caller was not identified as a roommate. The call was for a reported unconscious individual. It is believed that after that, a friend went inside, possibly the best friend of Ethan Chapin, to see what was going on inside the home. And as he walked up the stairs from the first floor to the second, he could see Ethan's body in the hallway just outside Zayna's door. The alternative is that Zayna's door was locked and he knew that Ethan was in there. And so he banged on the door and broke it down to try and get in and see what was going on. It is at that time that he discovered Ethan and Zayna. Either way, it is believed that they were seen first because Ethan's triplet siblings were then notified and told to come to the house because their brother was deceased. 
In an image circulated briefly in the media following the discovery of the bodies, a group of students is seen huddled in the driveway at 1112 King Road with metallic blankets wrapped around them. They are crying and appear to be in shock. The 911 call has never been made public, and none of the surviving roommates or friends who were there that day have been interviewed. Brian Koberger has not spoken in court. He has not even entered a plea. The sheath to the knife, which was discovered next to the body of Maddie Mogan, contained DNA from Brian Koberger on the tiny snap to close it. The bloody clothes that he wore that night have never been found, and neither has the murder weapon. I think about this story daily. I follow their family's pages. I've gone back and looked through their Instagram. I've chatted with people on Reddit, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and I will continue to cover this story on this podcast until justice is served. The horrible atrocities that Brian Koberger allegedly committed that night should never be forgotten. Their stories deserve to be told. The surviving roommate stories deserve to be told. So on this morning, one year later, I ask that you take a moment and think of their families. Think of these young kids and think of what they went through and say a silent prayer for them. This is not a horror movie. This is not a documentary on Netflix. This is not a book. This was real life. And they lived it horribly for 20 minutes that night. And the trial date is finally set. And the media circus begins. Remember what they went through. Remember what it's all for. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode on this terrible anniversary. If you made it this far, thank you for taking the time to listen to what they went through. As horrible as it is, I believe it deserves to be told. Please keep their family and friends and most of all the victims in your prayers. Thanks again for tuning in and good luck out there in the wild.